Welcome to San Francisco Ballet's To The Point podcast. I'm Jenny Scholick, the Associate Director of Audience Engagement here at San Francisco Ballet, and I'm your host for To The Point, your very favorite audio program note. We're here today to talk about the second-to-last program on San Francisco Ballet's season, John Newmeyer's The Little Mermaid. Now, this might be a story ballet, but if you're expecting something along the lines of Don Quixote or Sleeping Beauty or even the animated classic, well, you'd be in for a bit of a surprise if you weren't listening to this podcast, as this ballet is really none of these things. If anything, it's closer to last season's Nijinsky, also choreographed by Neumeyer, than your typical story ballet. It's psychologically intense, visually stunning, and full of characters who will draw you in and then break your heart. In this episode, we're going to talk a bit about John Neumeyer, Hans Christian Andersen, and the story of this ballet's creation, follow that up with the plot, it's a story you probably know, but with enough twists that a summary helps, and then intersperse the plot with a few things to look for choreographically and visually. Sound like a plan? Then let's get to the point. Let's start with John Neumeyer, an increasingly familiar name to San Francisco audiences. We saw his Nijinsky last year, as performed by the National Ballet of Canada, and before that, he and his company, the Hamburg Ballet, were here in 2014 with his production of A Midsummer Night's Dream. With that list, it may feel like Neumeyer mostly creates works with narrative or with story, and that is largely true. Although he does create some shorter non-narrative works, he's best known for reimagining the story ballet. He recently wrote on Hamburg Ballet's website that, quote, people love stories. They help us to comprehend the world around us. Ballet tells stories differently, wordlessly communicating inner states and human relationships rather than specific information. Dance becomes the living shape of emotion. All right, so how'd he get here? Although based in Hamburg now, Neumeyer is an American. He was born in Milwaukee, where he started dancing, and then moved on to Marquette University, from which he graduated with a BA in English Literature and Theater Studies. While there, he worked with Reverend John J. Walsh, who directed the Marquette University Players. Walsh, who was the first priest to earn a doctorate in theater from Yale, turned the players into a major professional program, including touring nationally. Neumeyer has recently credited Walsh with teaching him to, quote, see dance as a special form of theater, adding that, quote, since then I have experimented in my many creations with the idea of devising new forms for narrative ballet. Neumeyer's career took him from Marquette to Copenhagen and then London to pursue his dance training, and then to Stuttgart, where he danced under the direction of John Krenko, another choreographer known for working in the full-length form. After six years at Stuttgart, Neumeyer left to assume the directorship of Frankfurt Ballet, and then in 1973, he became director of the Hamburg Ballet, where he's been ever since. And yes, if you're good with doing math in your head, which I am not, that means that this is his 47th season as a dir- as director, making him, I think, the longest-serving director of a ballet company. But Neumeyer doesn't only work with Hamburg. In fact, The Little Mermaid was created for the Royal Danish Ballet in 2005 to celebrate the bicentenary of... But it doesn't only work with Hamburg. In fact, The Little Mermaid was created for the Royal Danish Ballet in 2005 to celebrate the bicentenary of author Hans Christian Andersen's birth. Andersen is a big deal in Denmark, as is his creation of The Little Mermaid. The statue of her in Copenhagen is a major tourist destination, aligning this character with that city. Interestingly enough, the statue was inspired by a ballerina. The piece came about because Carl Jakobsen, the son of the founder of Carlsberg Brewery, commissioned it as a gift to the city. 
He was a big fan of the ballet, and he saw a performance of Hans Beck's The Little Mermaid in 1909, and he was inspired. He asked sculptor Edward Erickson to make a statue modeled on ballerina Ellen Page. Erickson did, but in the end, as Page would not model in the nude, Erickson modeled the statue on her head and his wife's body. Today, that little statue of a ballerina mermaid is one of the most visited destinations in Copenhagen. But... Okay, so that whole tale about the mermaid statue means that John Newmeyer's 2005 version is hardly the first time that the Little Mermaid has been made into a ballet. And in fact, Anderson's fairy tales have been adapted many times over the last 200 years into ballets. George Balanchine's The Steadfast Tin Soldier, Bronislava Nijinska's The Ice Maiden, Arthur Pita's The Little Match Girl, Justin Peck's The Most Incredible Thing. All of these ballets are inspired by Anderson's tales. And, of course, one is also the basis of the most famous ballet movie of all time, The Red Shoes. There seems to be a certain affinity between Hans Christian Andersen's stories and this particular art form. Andersen, who was actually a big fan of the ballet, would have probably loved that. He briefly attended the Royal Theatre School in Copenhagen and was close friends with August Burnenville, the famous choreographer and artistic director. Bourneville even made a ballet out of Anderson's The Steadfast Tin Soldier in 1871. Although the ballet was only performed 14 times during Anderson's life, he wrote in his diary that after its premiere, he, quote, went up to the stage and thanked Bourneville. He in turn embraced me and asked if I could see a touch of my spirit in the ballet. Anderson's spirit definitely pervades Neumeyer's Little Mermaid, and for that reason, it's worth taking a few minutes to give a brief overview of his life. Anderson was born in 1805 in Odense, near Copenhagen, and died in 1875. In his 70 years, he wrote many plays, novels, poems, and autobiographies, but it was his fairy tales that have made him famous worldwide and one of the most frequently translated authors in literary history. Having grown up extremely poor, Anderson's education in theater and in writing helped him work his way up through the era's rigid class structure. His first celebrated piece of writing was published in 1829, and from there he enjoyed quite a bit of success, especially with his 1838 publication of his fairy tales. But his professional success never quite translated to his personal life. Socially, he was a bit of an odd duck, to put it mildly. Let's give an example. He enjoyed a correspondence with British author Charles Dickens during the 1840s and 50s until he paid a visit in 1857, staying with Dickens and his family for not the invited several days, but rather for a full five weeks. He was eventually told to leave, and Dickens cut off all contact. Anderson was always confused about what exactly had gone wrong. His love life was similarly fraught. He often fell in love, most famously with singer Jenny Lind, but remained celibate throughout his life. One of his most devastating relationships was with Edvard Collin, with whom he fell passionately in love in the 1830s, but who preferred women to men, and he ultimately married a young woman by the name of Henriette. We will come back to Edvard and Henriette in a moment. Anderson seems to have sublimated a lot of this personal angst into his fairy tales, creating stories like The Ugly Duckling and The Little Mermaid that foreground characters who are outsiders and downtrodden, unable to be seen for who they truly are. He certainly saw himself this way and translated that, those feelings into stories that explored the darker sides of love and longing. And it's there that John Newmeyer picks up the story of The Little Mermaid. Because this isn't just a balletic adaptation of the fairy tale, but actually a real blend of Anderson's life with that of his most famous creation. 
working with the idea that Anderson wrote The Little Mermaid in reaction to Edvard Collins's marriage, a pretty accepted theory, Neumeier, together with composer Lara Auerbach, creates a kind of dual story, one about a poet and his creative response to loss, and one about a mermaid and her desperate quest for true love. So let's dive into the plot, and along the way, I'll point out some things to look for. The ballet opens on a boat, where we first get to meet several of our main characters, the poet, Edvard, and Henriette. Edvard and Henriette are celebrating their wedding, and what should be a happy affair is clearly making the poet miserable. A tear rolls down his cheek, and he follows that tear as it falls into the ocean. This prologue, short, frames the narrative and begins to set up our movement language. You can notice how the poet's movements seem slower and more deliberate than those of Edvard and the wedding party, and how both groups have different stylized movements that convey their thoughts and emotions. You'll also start to notice the stylized sets. Neumeier does his own set costume and lighting design, meaning that his ballets are really a cohesive whole, with every element contributing to the world that he's building. The real plot gets going once the poet arrives under the sea, following that tear into the ocean. His love and desire for Edvard takes shape as a mermaid who dreams of visiting the human world. See what Neumeier does there? His, uh, his feelings manifest in the form of this mermaid. A ship passes by, and its captain is a prince, who bears a startling resemblance to Edvard. This prince is kind of strangely golfing on board the ship, and a ball flies out into the ocean. So following the path that the poet took earlier, the prince dives into the sea to retrieve this golf ball. But it isn't going to be that simple. An evil sea witch creates a storm that causes the prince to nearly drown. And the mermaid, at the poet's instigation, rescues the prince, bringing him to shore, and she falls instantly and deeply in love. The prince awakens on the shore, but he doesn't see the mermaid. Rather, he sees a princess with, surprise, a strong resemblance to Henriette. As the mermaid watches in despair, the prince falls for the princess because he thinks that she's the one who saved his life. This is where the mermaid and her creator, the poet, begin to diverge. While the poet had to stand by and watch Edward marry Henriette, the mermaid decides that she's going to take matters into her own hands and fight for the man that she loves. She goes to the sea witch to ask for help, and he agrees, but at a cost. He'll take her tail and give her legs, but it's going to be painful and messy and violent, and every step she takes on land is going to cause her excruciating pain. The mermaid accepts this bargain, and the scene that follows is what causes this ballet to have a parental advisory on it. To be frank, and as a bit of a trigger warning, this scene looks a lot like a rape, as the mermaid is violated by the sea witch and his minions as the poet watches. And at the end of it, she is finally rendered human. Left naked on the shore, she's found by the prince and taken onto his ship. But while this seems like it should be her opportunity, instead she finds herself confined to a wheelchair and with a front row seat to watch the prince's developing relationship with the princess. Whew. This first act really does have a lot going on in it. Neumeier's aim here was to create a real distinction between the human world and the sea world, and he does that really on every level, from sets and costumes to movement language and choreography. In the conception of this ballet, one major issue for Neumeier was how he was going to make dancers, whose art form is very reliant on, well, their legs, look like fish with fins and tails. Inspired by Japanese hakama pants, Neumeier devised wide-legged silk pants that trail onto the floor and fan out like fins. 
Together with the choreography, they create a sense of swimming, even on the very dry land of the stage. When the curtain rises on Act 2, we see the mermaid trapped in a box, representing the walls and enclosures of the human world. As the act continues, we see her struggling to assimilate into this human world. The final trauma for her comes when she's asked to be a bridesmaid in the prince and the princess's wedding. Unable to bear the pain anymore, she returns to the sea witch to see if she can return to her underwater world. She wants to go home. And the sea witch says yes, but of course, with the sea witch, there's always a catch. And this time, she has to kill the prince to get her tail back and to go home. He gives her a knife to enact this, um, this murder. At first, she thinks she's going to be able to do it. But in the end, when faced with actually killing the prince, she isn't able to go through with it. She loves him too much, and she loves him too purely. And so she leaves without harming him. The second act is really all about the mermaid's psychology. Not I mean, A little bit happens in terms of driving the plot, right? This whole thing about being asked to kill the prince. But it's really about her psychological uh, state. So notice the way that the sets seem to close in on her in contrast to the open expanse of the ocean. And look for the ways that her movement convey pain and agony. This ballet is a real tour de force for the ballerina, both technically and emotionally. She has to express deep, dark emotions with power and conviction. This is not a pretty princess tale. It's, it's a story of angst and loss. The ballet ends with an epilogue featuring just the mermaid and the poet. Together yet alone, rejected by both Edvard and the prince, but also unable to go back to life before this, tr- this intense love. They've both been transformed by this experience. They come together, bound by their loss, creator, and creation. The poet's love gives the mermaid a human soul, and the mermaid's story is going to make the poet immortal. In these final moments of the ballet, look for how perfectly matched the poet and the mermaid's movements are. They've danced together earlier in the ballet here and there, but not with this kind of uniformity, almost as if one is the shadow of the other. After all the angst and torture of the earlier scenes, this ending in which the two depend on one another seems to transform the ballet in a certain way, um, making it still a tragedy, of course, but also creating a new sense of hope, uh, a way for these two characters to move forward and create something new and beautiful out of the broken pieces of their lives. And that, in a nutshell, is John Newmyer's The Little Mermaid. It's high drama, intense theatricality, magical set, sets, and a heart-rending romance. This is definitely a don't-miss event this year in San Francisco. And of course, as I always say, in addition to these To The Point podcasts, I'd love for you to check out our popular Meet The Artist podcast as well. We post interviews with our various artists and visiting scholars, so um, a lot of great content there about the season so far. You can find those and this podcast on our website or in any podcasting app. If you subscribe to the podcast and an app, these will push to your phone as soon as they're released so you won't miss a single one. And we also do ask that you leave a rating and review in the Apple Store. Um, It really helps us to reach new audiences. We love hearing from you as well. So thank you so much for listening, and I hope to see you at the Opera House soon.